We're going to be continuing our series through the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 1. And the title of today's message is, From the Barren Wilderness to the Fruitful Kingdom. And it's a message of judgment, repentance, and abundant life. And I want to go through six main parts. We'll first look at in those days. In those days, we will see John, the second part, John as the next Elijah. We will see how he was in the wilderness. But then we'll see the kingdom of heaven dawning. Then next, we'll see repentance and fruit. And last, the Holy Spirit and fire. So starting in Matthew 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So in those days, in those days, we have here in Matthew chapter 3 a transition from Jesus' birth narrative in Matthew chapter 2 to a time called In Those Days, where we meet someone called John the Baptist. And this phrase, in those days, is kind of like maybe when you say, if you've ever said this yourself or heard someone say this, well, back in my day, I walked two miles uphill both ways to school, you know? <laughs> That's right. So, so the phrase, in those days, seems to refer to a specific certain time period and is usually marked by a significant event. Like the time before the flood, Matthew 24, 38 uses the same phrase. Or the time of tribulation, Matthew 24, 22, and Revelation 9, 6 uses the same phrase. Or the time of the outpouring of the Spirit, Acts 2, 18. Or the time of the new covenant of God, Hebrews 8, 10, and 10, 16. So here we come to a period of time which Matthew labels as in those days which marks a significant event, namely John the Baptist preaching. And this is significant because he is preparing the way for even a greater event. He is preparing the way for Jesus' ministry, which will begin the kingdom of God here on earth. So in order to stand, understand who the one John is preparing the way for, we must first understand who John is. And why is he called John the Baptist? Was he the first member of the First Baptist Church of the Wilderness? Probably not. So, John as the next Elijah. Matthew does not give us a description of John's early life or any mention of a First Baptist Church wilderness. But we learn in Luke chapter 1, verse 7, that God performed a miraculous work in John's birth. Because his mother Elizabeth was barren and advanced in years. Just as the wilderness where John was preaching was barren, God also provided Elizabeth, even in her barrenness, with a son. 
John was also prophesied in Luke chapter 1, verse 16, that John, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him, this is important, that he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. And this is also important, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So in Luke 1.17, we see that John was prophesied to go in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now Matthew will communicate this same idea just in different words. Namely, that John the Baptist is like the prophet Elijah. For Matthew describes him in verse 4 as wearing camel's hair and a leather belt. For Elijah was also described this way in 2 Kings 1.8. For 2 Kings 1.8 says, A garment of hair with a belt of leather was about his waist, which describes Elijah. So, and because John, in his likeness to Elijah, in his clothing and in his action, John is to be seen as the fulfillment of the one coming like Elijah in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Now, this is really cool because the way most English versions, English Bible translations have the order of the Old Testament is if you just go from Matthew and turn back a few pages, there's Malachi. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. And Malachi 4, 5 through 6 are the last verses of the Old Testament in this order. So just a couple pages before Matthew chapter 3, we see the prophecy. So if you want to turn there, we'll look at Matthew chapter 4, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. He says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So we see a promise of one coming like Elijah. We also see a warning of destruction. So this is the same description given to John the Baptist in Luke 1.7. Some in Jesus' time thought the actual person of Elijah would come back to earth. And this is seemingly possible for them. We can understand where they come from because Elijah was actually taken into heaven while he was still alive. You can read about that in 2 Kings chapter 2. But as we saw, John was his own person. He was born from his mother. And Luke 1.17 clarifies that he came in the spirit and in the power of Elijah, not that he was Elijah. John himself actually denies that he is Elijah in John chapter 1, verse 21, when the people specifically ask him about it. So, John the Baptist is not Elijah himself, but one like Elijah who, who came to prepare the way of the Lord. It's kind of like this. When your kid, maybe like Leland, uh, can throw a basketball, you know, three feet in the air, I might say, he's the next Michael Jordan, right? Because I, I can see it, yep. Or if uh, my daughter painted a beautiful picture of a unicorn, I'd say she's the next Picasso, right? I see it. So as it was, is with John the Baptist, they would say, hey, look, that guy's wearing camel's hair, 
uh, leather belt. He's preaching repentance. He's preparing the way of the Lord. He's the next Elijah, prophesied to come in Malachi 4.5. So John, as the next Elijah, is also confirmed by Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, when he says, And if you are willing to accept it, he, that is John the Baptist, is Elijah who is to come. And again in Matthew 17, 12, Jesus says, But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him. So we see from the Gospel of Matthew, from the Gospel of Luke, and Jesus himself, they all want us to know and think it is important that we know that John the Baptist is the next Elijah. So don't be like those spoken of in Matthew 7, 12, that do not recognize him as such. Now we go into the wilderness in verse 4. Now verse 4 mentions that John ate locusts and wild honey. And in the history of interpretation, there's a lot of uh, past interpreters who have sought to point out that John the Baptist eating locusts and wild honey conveyed that he lived a simple and modest life. And that we should actually imitate that simplicity and modesty. Now, that may be wise advice for some of us today, but it is questionable whether that's what Matthew intended by that detail. Instead, it is more likely Matthew is reasserting a repeated theme mentioned thus far, that Israel is in spiritual exile. With these details about John eating locusts and wild honey, because as one commentator points out, how in the Old Testament, locusts were instruments of God's judgment, Exodus chapter 10. God had specifically warned that the plagues of locusts would attack the land if his people failed to keep their covenant, Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 38 through 42. And the prophets record clear fulfillments of this threat, Joel chapter 1 and Joel chapter 2. Thus, eating locusts rather than an ordinary diet may have demonstrated that the people were still under the judgment of God and awaiting deliverance. And the wild honey may have a similar significance. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 21 through 25, warns that people would eat butter and honey because the land was filled with thorns and briars and the cultivation of the land had ceased. So John is being in the, he's pictured being in the wilderness. He is eating the things of the wilderness like wild honey and locusts, which are associated with God's judgment in the Old Testament. Therefore, him being in the wilderness in this special diet depicts the spiritual state of Israel at the time, one of a spiritual wilderness in need of a king and a kingdom to come and refresh, cultivate the land to bear fruit. John then is the next Elijah, for he is preparing the way of the Lord to do just that. And so it is important to know who John the Baptist is so that you will know who he is preparing the way for. As we saw in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, Elijah comes before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And Matthew points out also in verse 3 when he says, For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, when he said the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. 
John is not just preparing the way for another prophet or an earthly king. He is preparing the way for the Lord himself. For Jesus Christ is the Lord God with us. As Matthew says, this prophecy is from Isaiah, specifically Isaiah 40, verse 3. And as one commentator points out in Isaiah 40, God led Israel through the desert after the exodus from Egypt. He will now lead them through yet another desert from Babylon to Israel. So now in Matthew, Jesus the Lord is coming to lead his people through yet another desert, another wilderness. But it is from a spiritual wilderness, the wilderness of sin. And he leads salvation and leads them to the kingdom of heaven. So as we see, as we saw a few weeks ago, how Jesus was like Moses in their infancy. They both escaped rulers trying to kill them. And they, they came out of Egypt. This, was, this parallel was to show that Jesus was coming to save his people from their sins. Matthew 1.23. We also see this connection to salvation from sin in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. For John came into the wilderness of Judea to save those in the wilderness of sin. Before he came, in verse 2, he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So since God's kingdom is near, or is at the brink of arrival, John preaches to the people that they should repent. And now let's look at the kingdom of heaven. As we've seen in John's preaching in verse 2, the image of God's kingdom coming could either be a blessing for those in the kingdom or a threat for those opposed. It'd be kind of like an invasion of an earthly foreign kingdom. If a foreign kingdom were to invade a country, you might hear alarm sirens going off and an announcer might come over a speaker in intercom and declares a foreign kingdom is coming. A foreign kingdom is coming. All opposed to this foreign kingdom might have respond differently. Some might set up for battle to fight this kingdom. Some might run away in fear. Or maybe some might desert their own kingdom and join the ranks of the foreign kingdom. This is the way one commentator depicts the coming of God's kingdom. The Old Testament clearly warned that the Messianic king, the Messiah, the king that would come, would punish unrepentant sinners who rebelled against his rule. He responded to their laughable attempts to thwart his authority by breaking them with a rod of iron and shattering them like pottery. Psalm chapter 2. Thus sinners should repent before his wrath is unleashed. So throughout Matthew, we will see God's kingdom coming. We will see those in opposition to his kingdom. Some like the religious leaders of the day, political leaders, and even in the spiritual realm, we'll see demons opposing Jesus' kingdom. But we will also see elements of faith, repentance, people joining God's kingdom and transforming dry wilderness of sin and death to a field of well-watered trees producing all kinds of spiritual fruit in obedience to God's kingdom decrees. 
So the question for us today and for you, how will you respond to the same warning? Will you leave your wilderness? Will you leave your kingdom and join the ranks of God's kingdom? In this, we also see something really amazing time and time again, how God incorporates and involves people to accomplish his plans. Here we see it prophesied in Isaiah and Malachi that someone would prepare the way of the Lord. And as one commentator points out, that the word prepare here introduces the idea of the removal of of obstructions. The whole concept is, of course, figurative, declaring in a dramatic fashion that the Lord will let nothing stand in the way of the exile's return. And John prepares the way for the people's return by calling them to repent. And in its most basic sense, in general, the word repent can simply mean to change one's mind or feel remorse over something. But in Matthew here, the word repentance or repent seems to mean as one commentator writes, a deep remorse and sincere regret for one's sinful lifestyle. A decision to forsake that lifestyle in submission to God's authority and the pursuit of life characterized by obedience to God. So repentance is both a turning away from sin and a turning to God, namely living for God and following His ways rather than our own ways. And again, the question is for us today. Will you today repent? Turn from your own ways and turn to the ways of the Lord, the way of life. Will you continue this lifestyle of repentance, a daily turning away from sin and a daily turning to the ways of the Lord? This is continued with our topic of repentance and fruit. Repentance and fruit. We see in verse 6, it makes clear that the proper response to John's preaching of repentance is the response of confessing their sins. This connection to repentance of sins can also be seen in the very name given to John, John the Baptist. As one commentator notes, he is called the Baptist because he instructed repentant sinners to receive a ritual immersion, a baptism, an immersion, depicting the cleansing from sin they had graciously been granted. So this idea of baptism and the forgiveness of sins can also be seen in Mark 1.4, the parallel account in Mark chapter 1, verse 4. For John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Mark's account makes it really clear what John's doing. And a second part in which you turn to God and his way of life can be seen in Matthew 3, 8. John tells the Pharisees to bear fruit in keeping with or worthy of repentance. The fruit he is talking about is people's thoughts, words, actions, namely any way that you live. And Jesus talks about there being two types of fruit coming from two different types of trees in Matthew chapter 7, verse 17. A good tree produces good fruit, and a bad tree produces bad fruit. Very simple. 
It is also sim similar in Matthew 3.8. You have repentance of sin that produces good fruit, namely a good and holy life that is pleasing to the Lord in thought, word, action. And in contrast, to those who continue in their sin will produce bad fruit or no fruit at all. Namely, a sinful lifestyle which is contrary to trusting and obeying the Lord, which produces sinful thoughts, words, actions, a life that seeks one's own comforts and pleasures before they seek the face of God. So which tree are you? What is the fruit of your life? As God, as John called his people to repent and bear good fruit, Jesus does the same in Matthew 4, 17. Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Paul, the apostle Paul does the same in Acts 17, 20. And he understands this to be a commandment to all people everywhere. Repent. I also urge you to evaluate your life. Evaluate your fruit. Confess your sins to God. Turn away from those sins. Find the forgiveness that Jesus offers through his death and resurrection. And turn to God's kingdom and bear good fruit. Jesus will give us a description of God's kingdom and the type of fruit we should bear in his Sermon on the Mount. We'll get to Matthew chapter 5 in several weeks. Paul also provides a good summary of some of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. He says, But the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So not only does the repentance of sin have present consequences of producing good fruit now in our life and being a part of God's kingdom now, but repentance is also a necessary prerequisite of entering God's kingdom in eternity. As one commentator writes, it is decisive for Matthew to live in the present, in keeping with the kingdom of heaven, so that in the future, the church will be permitted to enter the reign of heaven. We see this future and eternal aspect when John tells the Pharisees and Sadducees in verse 7, that in order to flee God's coming wrath on sin, they must do what? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now see, the Pharisees and Sadducees were the two leading groups of religious leaders of Judaism at that time. And we see in verse 7 that John actually calls them a brood of vipers or an offspring of vipers, which later in Matthew 12, 34, and 23, 33, Jesus calls them the same thing, offspring of vipers, because they are acting as venomous snakes, which can be a mortal threat. Through the Pharisees' false teaching, their refusal to repent and bear fruit, 
they were actually going to be presenting a mortal threat to Jesus' life at the end. And they were actually threatening the very king of the kingdom. And he's ultimately the ultimate judge, as we'll see in verse 12. We also see in verse 9, it seems that the Pharisees and Sadducees may have presumed that because they had Abraham as their ancestor, they would be guaranteed salvation, no matter how they acted. This is also significant in the very fact that John was performing baptisms. Because in that time, as one commentator points out, first century, in first century Judaism, John's baptism most closely resembles proselyte baptism, which is Gentiles who wish to convert to Judaism needed to be baptized. So thus, John's baptism may have signified that the Jews needed to seek atonement in the same way Gentiles did, by repentance. By receiving a ritual like baptism, Jews showed that they were not depending on their mere identity as Israelites, as a guarantee of salvation. John goes on to communicate this in verse 9. He says that it is not through their ancestry that they will be saved or called children of Abraham, because why God could raise up children for Abraham from these stones, he says. In the most general sense, this is a figure of speech to tell of God's mighty power to save anyone. Anyone can be saved from Jew, Gentile, if you repent and believe and you bear fruit. Also, an interesting parallel is in Isaiah 51. Isaiah 51, verse 1 may be helpful to look at because Abraham there is referred to as a rock in which his descendants were cut from, thus making them little stones. Isaiah 51.1 says, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were cut and to the quarry from which you were dug. Verse 2, he, he, he gives us who the rock is. He says, Look to Abraham, your father. So the Pharisee seemingly read this second part of Isaiah 51, verse 2, and they said, yeah, I'm from Abraham. We're good to go. I'm cut from the rock of Abraham. But they missed verse 1. They missed the first part. He says, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness. It's not about mere ancestry. Verse 9, back in Matthew chapter 3, he says, for I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. He's saying that God is able to save anyone. Anyone can be a true child of Abraham. As Jesus says similarly in Matthew 8:11, he says, I tell you that many will come from east and west to share the banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. For anyone, no matter where you're from, can be saved. For us today, in, in our particular context, I think many may think that because their grandparents, their parents were involved in a church in some way, that that will save them, regardless of what you may believe or what, how you live. Some may believe that since they have been a member of a church, even since before they were born, 
I don't know how that's possible, but they were a, a member of a church before they were born. They think that they'll be saved no matter how they live. Or maybe some believe since they said a prayer and was even baptized a long time ago as a kid, they will be saved no matter how they live. The list can go on and on, but the Bible is clear. Part of trusting in Jesus as your God, Savior, and King is to live a life different, is to turn away, repent, and have remorse over your sin. For Jesus has come to free you from that former God, to free you from that former king of your life and bring you into a new kingdom, bring you into his family, into his kingdom to live life abundant, producing good fruit. Again, John began preaching in verse 2, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And not only without repentance will you not be able to enter the kingdom of God, as it is a prerequisite for entrance to the kingdom of God, you will receive the full consequence, punishment, and wrath for your sins. As John describes in verse 10, the punishment for sin, he says, Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John describes the punishment being for every tree that does not bear fruit. It is without exception. This punishment is further described in verse 12 as an unquenchable fire or a fire that never goes out. The punishment for unrepentance is serious. It is eternal punishment because the sin was against an eternal God, the eternal God. And God would be unjust to, hold, to not hold people accountable for their sins against Him and sins committed against others in His creation. But there is hope. There is good news because God is gracious. He offers forgiveness of sins and sends people like John, like the Apostle Paul, preachers today, to preach the message of repentance which leads to bearing good fruit, turning to God and trusting in His salvation and receiving the forgiveness of sins. And our last section we turn to is the Holy Spirit and fire. We see in verse 11 that we repent and bear fruit not in our own strength, but in the strength and power of the Holy Spirit. For John says in verse 11, John, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. As one commentator points out, the Messiah will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Thus the Messiah will fulfill the promise of the new covenant. As Ezekiel 36, 27 says, I will place my spirit within you, and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. Thus John could only demand and only urge that people repent. Jesus would provide the power in the life-giving Holy Spirit. This filling and baptism of the Holy Spirit of believers is spoken of very clearly in Acts chapter 11, verse 15. 
Peter says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning, referring to Acts chapter 2. And then in verse 16, he says, And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? So anyone who believes and repents, believes that Jesus is your God, Savior, and King, will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, namely filled with the Holy Spirit of the new covenant who provides grace and power to obey the law of the kingdom. So now looking back, one last point, verse 11. What does it mean to be baptized with fire? For it says he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Looking in the context, we see fire mentioned in verse 10 and verse 12 and refers to the wrathful fire of condemnation on the unrepentant. It is likely this is the same meaning in verse 11. Because taken in the context, we look at the word fire here, it would read something like this, verse 10, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 11, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Verse 12, The chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. As one commentator summarizes very clearly, John is addressing a mixed audience that contains both repentant sinners, those receiving baptism, and unrepentant sinners, as we saw, the Pharisees and Sadducees. The Messiah will baptize the repentant with the Spirit, dramatically transforming their lives. But He will also baptize the unrepentant with fire, a frightening but just judgment on those who reject the Messiah's gracious offer of salvation. So I'll close with this final summary and plea. If you've been in the wilderness, come into the kingdom. Receive rest. Receive the power of the Holy Spirit to obey the King and live life as it is meant to be lived. See your sin as an offense against the holy, perfect, and eternal God, which is worthy of eternal fire. Run from that sin. Turn away from it. Have remorse over your disobedience. And turn to the cross. Turn to forgiveness offered through Jesus' death and resurrection. Repent today and every day as we all grow more like Jesus and seek to produce good fruit.